Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Well, welcome everybody to Fortress on a Hill. We have a, a really great, somewhat morbid episode for you guys today, talking about uh, the coronavirus, the military's and government's response to it so far, and where we see it going as time goes on. Um, however, before we get started, I got a, a few announcements, and one of them begins with Danny talking about his new book that is going to be coming out later this year. Danny? Yeah, totally excited about this project. Um, the book is available for pre-order on Amazon. Um, you know, maybe wait until uh, things calm down to keep your drivers off the road. But it's called uh, Patriotic Descent, uh, America in an Age of Endless War. And uh, I really like the title. Um, Bob Shear from Truthdig, you know, world-famous journalist, uh, kind of came up with it. I mean, the concept. And we batted it around many months ago. And uh, it's being published by... Heyday Books up in Berkeley, California. Uh, definitely check it out. You know, um, it's it's far less memoir, although I tell some stories uh, about me, but it's really a, a more philosophical and um, with a lot of examples, uh, historical and otherwise, of why uh, patriotism, especially uh, in times of crisis, can best be manifested through dissent against the powers that be when they become immoral uh, and, and illegal, as I think we're seeing. So, yeah, check it out. Uh, Pre-order on Amazon, Patriotic Descent. And thanks a lot. All right, sounds good. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, the next announcement is uh, something we're going to do something on, of, uh, as a bigger episode eventually, but it's that uh, Chelsea Manning has finally been released from federal custody from her, her grand jury confinement. And um, almost as good as that, not quite as good, but almost as good as the fact that, that uh, people in support of her have crowdfunded all of her fines. So she is the uh, massive, massive fines that the Trump administration threw on her for choosing not to speak up have been uh, it, it, taken care of, have been paid. Um, but I just wanted to give a, a shout out to her, to uh, her choice not to speak, to, to make the situation worse. Um, that she was in and but to, to hold out for what she believed in and I'm, I'm really grateful that she is a, a part of uh, a part of our community that way um, the next one is about uh, just general reviews for the podcast um, as podcasters reviews really really help us they really give us a chance for people to know more about us in a concise uh, format and so if you guys have a chance, if you haven't dropped one, please uh, drop us a review. It doesn't have to be any particular amount of long or short, just what, what you feel is important for people to know about our podcast. But please do that if you can. And last, 
but certainly not least, and I'm really excited about this, is that um, the great Chris Hedges is going to be coming on our podcast here in the, the next week. Um, we'll be talking to him about his uh, most recent book, America, the Farewell Tour, as well as uh, his career and his thoughts on our, uh, our ongoing coronavirus era. So uh, please, please keep an eye out for that. I know the three of us are all really looking forward to it. And uh, we'll go ahead and get started here. Real quick, I, I just want to add about uh, something about Chris, uh, and it has to do with Truth Dig, uh, which many listeners may know. Uh, I've been a weekly columnist at for a number of years. Chris has been there twice as long as me. He was the lead for the longest time. And I, and I just want to plug that Chris, as well as just about the entire staff and most of the columnists, uh, are involved in a labor dispute with with Truth Dig, um, and and it involves the move to try to push uh, Bob Shear, who I was just speaking about, uh, out of Truth Dig. And I don't want to get into all the details, but look, if you're interested in this, uh, in in this you know free speech issue, uh, in this issue of labor relations, you know, check out the uh, posts by the staff, the public posts. Uh, they're all posted on popular resistance because they were taken down from truth dig uh truth dig is currently on a hiatus it may be going away forever but uh i just really want to plug chris's role in uh as the protagonist one of he would hate it to think he was the only one one of the protagonists of this uh, really important labor dispute and, and really important uh speech okay uh free speech issue so yeah check that out guys Thanks for that, Danny. Yeah, I, I uh, had been wanting to mention something about uh, them, them going on protests and hope that they can get their stuff worked out because Truth Dig is an amazing resource for, for all of us, but especially in a way that will help them maintain solidarity and get better, better conditions for everybody there. So I'd like to start today talking about some important stories, some important headlines that I've been tracking uh, with uh, alongside the coronavirus and some of them are direct related some of them aren't but I think all of them are ones that we should be asking deep questions about because I would say our military's only active mission right now should be trying to prevent the outbreak and spread of the coronavirus whatever they happen to be doing but that's not exactly what's happening everywhere and we'll talk about that more as time goes on so the first story is about that um a whole, all of the branches are currently sending about 5,000 troops um, down to South America for a counter-drug operation. Um, I believe it's supposed to involve uh, Venezuela. Uh, for those keeping up in the news, um, Nicolas Maduro was recently, um, what was the, the rating? It was a terrorist drug rating of some kind that he was given that he, that Venezuela is responsible for certain outbreaks of, of drug issues. I, I, I didn't read about it very deeply, but in, anyways, I don't know that this is the best use of 5,000 troops right now where our country is sitting right now. It seems like a pretty fucking big mistake, but uh, something to think about. Next, along with the 5,000 troops that are already along the southern border, we're adding 500 more to that. Um, this is another big hole that has been in the news is that the... Um, the Trump administration, along with many other governments around the world, have been trying to make changes that are favorable to what they want. 
um, under the guise, uh, not under the guise of, but under the cover of the coronavirus. And so it's really important we see that. Again, I don't think any of the 5,500 troops need to be there at the border, period. But is adding 500 to them at this moment the best choice for all of us? Next, the planning meetings of the coronavirus ended up being classified by the Trump administration. They actually were physically moved into um, SCIFs. There's an acronym for the military. They're called Sensitive Compartmentalized Information Facilities. And it was a move that even received pushback by the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, which is part of Trump's team. So if, if that gives you any idea of how flagrant this was to hide the planning and ensure that the some of the criticism that might be levied on Trump for lack of preparation, now we can't even really see those deliberations. So it's something to think about. Next, the current CDC director, Robert Redfield, has a, a really, really deep history of controversial opinions. Um, there's a little bit from uh, Mother Jones here. In the 80s and 90s, as an army doctor at Walter Reed, Redfield worked on setting up protocols to handle service members infected with AIDS. Even by the standards of the era, when much was still unknown about the virus, his suggestions were very controversial. He advocated quarantine infecting soldiers, in, in, excuse me, infected soldiers, spreading their diagnosis across the chain of command with little concern for their privacy and investigating their sexual histories. Um, the following is an intro for a book that Mr. Redfield wrote um, on the same epidemic. Quote, it is time to reject the temptation of denial of the AIDS slash HIV crisis to reject false prophets who preach the quick fix strategies of condoms and free needles, to reject those who preach prejudice, and to reject those who try to replace God as judge. The time has come for the Christian community to confront the epidemic. Um, Redfield, also, uh, he also named about the breakdown of family values and increasing number of single parent households as key factors responsible for the spread of AIDS. Now, none of that specifically has to do with the coronavirus, but it, it's very telling that somebody in Trump's administration, probably not the only one, would have this extreme views and would be pushing them forward in a time such as this. And the last headline I have before we talk about a, a little more meat and potatoes here is about censorship of what's really happening um, with the military right now in terms of their numbers of infection. Um, up till, I want to say about 10 days ago, maybe two weeks, DOD was giving people fairly uh, relatively clear numbers. You're able to see which commands might have had um, a soldier or two come up positive. Um, they are now only giving infection number by overall service and other demographics. They're trying to cease any releases that would show um, the actual location of a, of a soldier within their combatant command. So all we're going to be able to find out from now on is the Army has this many, the Navy has this many, etc. Um, which is, is, makes it very hard for people like us and, and, and other journalists to really see where they need where additional help is needed and advocate for it as well as who's making good decisions so to start us off for today i wanted to talk about the uss theodore roosevelt and it for anybody following the news it is an aircraft carrier that about a month ago came to a screeching halt in guam because they knew that they had infected sailors aboard and they weren't certain exactly how to handle it and following that the commander 
of the USS Theodore Roosevelt sent a memorandum to his command, not to the media, to his command regarding their current effectiveness to continue missions. Quote, if required, the USS Theodore Roosevelt would embark all assigned sailors, set sail, and be ready to fight and beat any adversary that dares challenge the U.S. or our allies. Um, the virus would certainly have an impact, but in combat, we are willing to take certain risks that are not acceptable in peacetime. However, we are not at war and therefore cannot allow a single sailor to perish as the result of this pandemic unnecessarily. Now, he acknowledged that he received new guidelines from the Navy and the CDC to quarantine his, his, his troops in a barracks-type setup. He made it clear that no one on the Theodore Roosevelt can actually quarantine, quote, due to a warship's inherent limitations of space. The spread of disease is ongoing and accelerating, end quote. Um, and keeping in mind, 5,000, that's how many people are supposed to be on that aircraft carrier right now. Next in his letter, he discusses how he feels the Navy is inappropriately focusing on testing when quarantine and isolation is the only way to ensure that it doesn't spread following infection. Quote, testing merely confirms the presence of the virus. Due to the close quarters required on a warship and the current number of positive cases, every single sailor, regardless of rank, um, on board the Theodore Roosevelt must be considered close contact. Testing will only be useful as the ship returns to work after isolation or quarantine to confirm the effectiveness of the quarantine period. Um, the COVID-19 test cannot prove a sailor does not have the virus. It can only prove that a sailor does. As an illustration, the first 33 sailors on board the Theodore Roosevelt um, of the first 33 diagnosed with COVID-19, excuse me, 21%, seven of those 33 infected sailors were negative on a test. And so later today, I've got a little trick about this. So we're going to talk about more. It's, uh, I, I'm calling it, well, I'm not, I didn't name it this, but I just found it, calling it Schrodinger's virus. But we'll come around to that in, in, in a little bit. So um, they're now trying to work out how the ship's going to be evacuated, where all these sailors are going to be housed or and or quarantined at the time. I have zero idea how that could affect the civilians who live and work on Guam, along with the indigenous citizens of Guam. Ordinarily, Navy procedures would have sailors remain in the ship for their own protection, like having to go to port somewhere dangerous or major combat operations are happening. In this case, that normal instinct to have sailors remain on the ship to protect them is possibly making all of them sick. Now, that's to say nothing of Guam's medical capacity. I messaged my younger brother, who was a submariner stationed in Guam, to ask him about exactly that, and he said there is a new Navy hospital there given the small number of troops that reside there, they can't have much in the way of ICU units or other major systems like negative pressure rooms. Um, in the smaller civilian hospital there, most of their staff are rotating in from other areas in the South Pacific. So it's possible that they could be quite, quite undermanned. Hagen, would you mind jumping in here a little bit about the, 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 the Navy side of this? Sure. <clears throat> um... Uh, it's just really disappointing. I love, I love that uh, you pointed out that part from the the uh, letter saying that testing alone does nothing, and that we need to have quarantine and uh, isolation procedures. Just because that, like, clearly that makes sense, right? That seems to be the like most logical route. Um, but it's hard. It seems to be hard for the Navy to decide about what 
needs to be like what is considered essential operations and what isn't. And I mean, I read a letter from the CNO, which is the chief of naval operations, um, the other day that he put out yesterday. And he basically just said the same line that we hear all the time of, you know, we need to be ready to fight any adversary, but also um, continue, you know, but be be aware of like our vulnerabilities to this virus. So he basically said nothing and just a big thing of like toe the line, but also like we need to protect ourselves. And a lot of it was very, you know, individual, like what individuals can do to protect themselves and like what, what like commanders of ships or bases can do. But like we all know the easiest way to stop this is to just stop doing things. And again, the military never considers that to be an option, even in the middle of this. And you know, when especially when you have like a, a carrier, like you said, it's five thousand people. You have people in really close quarters because it's a ship and you're trying to cram a bunch of people in there. So there's no fucking way you can quarantine people inside of a ship. That's so it's just, I don't know. I'm just really disappointed in how, again, the most basic question of what do we actually need to do in the middle of this as far as operations go and what do we not need to do is still never even being considered. That we're continuing to try to act like it's business as usual when this is clearly not the case. You know, one of the things that's, you know, you mentioned that there's 5,000 folks, you know, give or take on an aircraft carrier this size. Um, the captain, right, uh, who's in trouble, right, who's, who's been relieved, yeah. who has been relieved, okay? Um, he, he's the mayor of a floating city, right, of a small floating city. I mean, this, this is a profound responsibility to his people. And as you guys know, the military loves its platitudes, you know. Um, there's always the debate, right? Uh, mission first or men first. The men are the mission. And uh, the military, of course, came up with uh, a, a really good hedge on that, right? I mean, of course, it's the mission from their perspective, always. But they can't say that outright, just this flat out. So they say, mission first, people always, right? Mission first, men always. Okay, this is nonsense, right? It requires so much uh, taking apart, right? Analysis of the, of the language. And, and what, I, what I mean is, look at another set of platitudes. I was a staff officer just long enough to know that according to army and I probably military doctrine, we judge, you know, any mission uh, for effectiveness based on two things, measures of performance, MOPs, and measures of effectiveness, MOEs. And the best way to describe them is a measure of performance is doing lots. Okay, it's all, it's all supply side, you know. Uh, this many patrols completed, you know, uh, this many sweeps done, this many rocks painted the color of the flag, whatever, right? Whatever the military is doing on that deck. Um, so it's, it's doing lots. And then measures of effectiveness is doing well, okay, outputs uh, that, you know, how have we actually affected the mission? How, to what extent is the MOPs, is the doing lots, you know, doing well? Is it, is it achieving goals? And, and 
So this gets to this question of effectiveness or, or readiness. I think it's a cult, by the way. It's a cult. Just like being a Trump supporter is a death cult today, once and for all. Uh, this readiness term that the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Army, and everybody else is using, this is a cult of readiness. And no one defines readiness for us. Because I reject the idea that there is any external state-based threat today. Not one. Sorry, folks. Not even the Russian bear. Not even the Chinese dragon. Not even the bad haircut in North Korea. None of them presents a tangible threat, okay, based on intent and impact or intent of like and likelihood. Not one of them that warrants these massive exercises that we're seeing. 4,000 soldiers and Marines in the desert together, side by side, attacking cities that look a lot like cities in Iran. That's readiness? That's mission essential? Another fun word, essentiality? I reject it. I reject it outright. And Henry, I don't know, do, you, do, do we intend to uh, dig in one by one on, on the firing, or should, should I say uh, my quick piece on the fact that this guy was fired? Uh, go for it, Danny. I mean, some people are going to say, well, some people are going to say, well, this is the Navy acting out in a time of crisis, right? The crisis brought this out, right? This is an exceptional case. It's wrong, they'll say. There are also people who will say it's right, that we need to follow the chain of command. Stop, unfollow those people, make them social pariahs. I don't care. I don't care how mannequin that sounds. They're dead to me. They're dead to me. Pick a side. We'll get to that. But the point is there are people who will say that, that the Navy's wrong, but they'll act like it's, it's almost like the Trump phenomenon that like, oh, it's, this is unique. This is unprecedented. No, 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 no. This is the Navy. This is the military exposing what it has always been. This is the Navy exposing itself. This is the military industrial complex. This is the national security state operating precisely according to design because it is time to pick a side on this issue. Are you with the company men? The company men, you know the type, right? The mid-level or even high-level bureaucrats who put loyalty to institution over human beings. And God, there's not, if there, God damn it, if there's not millions of them. Are you, are you with the company men who are more scared of exposure and bad press, although this has backfired, who are more scared of exposure and bad press, more than they love human beings? You gotta pick a side. I'm not usually for binaries. And some people will easily point out that I'm contradicting so many of my arguments for nuance, but there are certain times where it's really hard not to say that you have to pick sides. Um, I just posted, I'm sure it's gonna go viral if it hasn't already, not mine, but in general, this video, about 25 seconds worth, although there were longer versions, of the, the crew cheering and chanting this captain's name, Captain Crozier, I believe, as he ignominiously walks down the proverbial plank to the SUV that's going to take him, you know, to the end of his career, right? To career's end, because this is a death sentence career-wise.
And, and it should have been an ignominious thing. And, and yet, and it's in the night, of course, there's something in profoundly beautiful about it. He's like a conquering Roman emperor, except he's walking in reverse away from the troops, and they're cheering him the whole way. I'll tell you, God help the company man that they put in to replace him. Because I wouldn't want to try to win the loyalty of those guys after Crozier's been fired. And I'll kind of end with that for now. I'm angry, guys. I'm angry. It's interesting. Um, actually, Mary, who we interviewed a while back, her husband was on the ship. And uh, a couple of Mary's friends, you know, that were on the ship. And so they're all really excited and glad that they're back. But I just, like like you said, Danny, it's just the cover-your-ass mentality on steroids right now. And you have those people that I, I, I truly want to try and understand that mentality. Like, I understand that you give, like, a portion of your life to an institution, and so you feel some kind of ownership, some kind of, like um, identity with that with that institution, but and like <laughs> when do you make those choices of you know do I protect the thing that I have given my life to, or do I protect the people that are also with me on the in this you know the people that I'm responsible for as their leader, right? Like I just don't, I, I really don't get it. I don't get those people that can make that calculus and think that by doing this, they're somehow bettering the Navy. They're bettering the experience of America, you know, by doing something like this. It just really, it, it, it makes no sense to me. I think uh, this got me reminded of those, those videos from, uh, Sekdef Mattis, uh, drinking venom when he was in Thailand, I don't know, maybe two years ago now. And you know, that, that when I saw him do that, that really bothered me. Cause again, I understand he's trying to show what he sees as solidarity with his Marines at the time he's doing something that's horrendously stupid. And so there, there's never a good point in the military to be anything close to an intellectual. In fact, there's we 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 texted about it yesterday, um, that it's in fact shied away from at so many places, and once you get for far enough up the chain, because you spent all that time not asking those active questions, not asking the bigger Danny type big picture questions, that they're just closed off. There's there's no way that they can offer anything close to to leadership. But but that's the thing is that it's 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 a it's a duality part because you know Mattis being what was he the, the fucking warrior monk right the guy that was supposed to be really really learned in everything he did which we we learned through experience was obviously false um, that it's such a ravenous community against anything that looks like being an intellectual and it gets snapped off and part of that is in here you know Trump's the Trump's the strong man. Trump's the guy that said, you know, that they, they go to war with the, the troops that they have. Oh, excuse me. That was Rumsfeld. Sorry. I'm mixing up my, my neocon dumbasses. Um, okay. I think I got my thought out there. Well, you know, I mean, I agree with you. Let's be honest. The intellectualism is a liability for a professional military career. It's a liability. 
you advance as an intellectual type in spite of not because of your intellectual rigor and the people that look there is a great profound pulling of the collective wool over america's eyes there is snake oil being sold to us ever since david petraeus became a national household name and that is uh we are supposed to believe the sleight of hand that intellectuals are running the army that something profound happened something remarkable happened in 2006 and 7 where the intellectuals won right this is the the petraeus uh you know myth story the origin story but people like mattis the warrior monk and mccrystal um the spartan monk uh, i just came up with that because i mean look at him and he ran like 18 miles a day and he looks like skeletor but anyway and petraeus and all these guys the 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 idea was that they're intellectuals. They are faux intellectuals. They are smart. They are educated. Okay. Um, that does not mean that they are of true intellect or that they're deep thinkers. Mattis brags about his books. He doesn't have much of a personal life. Okay. In the traditional sense, which is totally fine. But his books are supposedly like the love of his life, like mine are, right, in a way, um, outside of my kids. Um, but he's reading the wrong books, folks. He's reading the wrong books. The, the, they masquerade grand tactics, which isn't even a thing. So I'm, I'm being facetious. They, they're masquerading tactics as, as grand strategy. They only ask how questions, not if or should questions. How questions, not if or should questions, right? So a how question for the faux intellectuals that are supposedly running our military is how do we defeat the Taliban? Just for one example. Uh, Should questions or if or can questions go like this. Um, I'm a four-star general in charge of an entire war in an inherently political position whether we admit it or not, always is, always will be, right? I'm, I'm the governor of a province of the empire. I am a governor general in the Lord Mountbatten role, okay? Inherently political. Uh, uh, an if question is, or a can question is, can we defeat the Taliban? Going a step further <laughs> is, should we? Be in Afghanistan even trying to defeat the Taliban? Is it a existential enough or real enough threat? Right, those questions don't get asked. And so I, I, the only reason I divert to this and I, and I digress a little bit is to show that if an institution sells us the snake oil of Mattis intellectualism, right? I think I made that word up, all right? Then we should expect nothing less than bureaucratic company man mediocrity which of late has manifested in this you know singular story of the captain of the of the floating city i mean i sit at home thinking about this until three forty in the morning so i understand if it comes off a little esoteric but but i i i think it's inherently important to even ask these questions and, and i guess that's my point No, it's, it's one thing I thought of, and I'm, I'm sure you guys both have great amounts of experience with this, is that the, 
the military and especially the army and the marine corps have a kind of the market cornered on dirtiness we'll say and by dirtiness i just mean lack of general cleanliness because soldiers fucking stink it, it's just a reality of the life they live in and also that they come to the military without having any good grooming habits and the military certainly doesn't give them any but in terms of that in terms of you know D danny think about the stinky guys that you dealt with you know i we had a guy on my first deployment that he had to sign out on a log and go shower every single night and sign back in with both with his with his team leader um but are, is is anybody looking at the the, the very basic parts and, and saying to them we can't be this right now like what we're talking about danny we we even if we thought we could do the mission before right now we can't and they're not even going to ask basic questions like that they're not even gonna you know that that um are these assholes actually going and washing their hands thoroughly that they're you know that those that might have symptoms might throw on a mask can you imagine how much hell an ordinary marine or soldier or even even sailor even uk and for wearing a mask and caring about your health that it, it it's pushed that far down that's the lack of logic that all of these guys have to live with and their and their leadership has the same the same d deficiencies as well and i mean you know those people because they get like like people just laugh at them right they don't really like try to help them change their habits i mean if they have like maybe some good ncos you know, or somebody like a peer that's like, hey, dude, like, fucking shower, you know, like we had a kid like that in my, in my uh, school, in my training school, like my roommate or my, my friends were roommates with this kid that didn't shower at all. And like, he would just come from PT and like change from PT into his, uh, into his uniform and then go to class like that. Yeah. And you're just like, what the fuck? And then, I mean, I've heard some really nasty stories of people on ships and, like, some really, really gross stuff that, like, I will not repeat here. But, like, needless, needless to say, like, nasty shit happens all the time, uh, especially when you have young people that maybe don't, like, some people don't think about that stuff, you know, or they haven't had to. And, yeah, like you said, it's no one asking that question of, you know, what, are we ensuring people are following these guidelines you know like should people have to mandate you know times if, if they're going to be on a ship i think everybody should have like bathroom breaks and like washing hand time you know on the middle of a watch it's like all right we've got this amount of time to do your job but like you have to go wash your hands at this point like i mean just if, if we're going to have people continuing to do operations then we need to have things in place like firm sops in place to be like, all right, you know, we're going to follow these guidelines, but it doesn't look like they're really doing that. They're just kind of, I was just looking through the, um, the, uh, the nav admin about the virus and like what they're trying to do. Uh, and it's basically just the same shit that they've been telling everybody else, but there's no real like benchmarks for how to make it better. And there's no real specific, um, things that they're saying okay we're gonna do this and we're all gonna do that so yeah, i don't know i mean there's no there's no come on guys we have to be clean right now it's that yeah. you fuckers don't know how to be clean in the first place and 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 
granted the, the cleanliness is always a thing for for soldiers um but in an epidemic it just becomes something different but when people they they will if they're willing to break quarantine if they're not willing to maintain space which we're hearing stories about they're still doing full formations of of physical training for people on post uh -huh. coughing and sweating together and sharing whatever whatever germs they happen to have um you know and and troops share a lot of stuff they share cigarettes they share spitters we share cars with each other um i saw another article that talked about that it might have been the guys in the 101st because they sent a whole bunch of them out to the field and the immediate question i had is how the fuck is the field cleaner than being back at post yes it might allow them to isolate a certain extent and and then how do you create anything close to a quarantine out there it, it, it just there is no thought process for these kind of situations other than the shit that is nailed into somebody over and over again you know center mass on the target shooting your rifle or other things that, that just get nailed into you well you know uh and and a lot i mean it's one thing if there's well it's already a problem if they're sharing a small tent but a rel you know relatively small tin sized tent or whatever but yeah. i mean think about this you know when the army reversed its order to cease most training it reversed that order and then it went ahead, the military, because it was a joint with the Marines, went ahead and did this 4,000 soldier and Marine, you know, uh, mock war with Iran, along with the Emiratis and the UAE, right, in the desert. Like, and then one of the, the culmination of what I read of that exercise was seizing, a, a, you know, an Arab world city or a Persian world city, because I'm sure that Iran is the target. Yeah. Well, those of us who were in ground forces, right, Henry, I mean, uh, the four-man stack that clears a room of which I'm sure there were hundreds or scores in this mock city, you literally four men stand touching one another, you know, as, as SOP to, to charge into these buildings to clear the most, you know, the most dangerous infantry mission, clearing a building or clearing a trench is probably just as dangerous, but you know what I mean? I mean, this, the whole concept is ludicrous, but what the military has done in response to all this, um, rather than take, rather than follow their own early guidance, which was reasonable for a minute, I have to admit. I mean, there were reasonable things coming from the top, yeah. but then they reversed most of them. But what they've done instead, four days ago, the Pentagon ordered all military bases and combat, combatant commands to withhold coronavirus case numbers. Okay. So now we're not telling you, we're not telling the public how many soldiers have it. Now, we know why they say that, and we'll get to that. Then we'll know their justification. It's always the same one, operational security. But um, isn't it interesting that that happened, that announcement was made right after, a, a, you know, a half dozen of us who write about this published the, the data showing that the infection, the positive rate of for corona was higher in per capita in the active duty force than it was in the civilian world. It was, it was immediately on the heels of that, on that report. I'm not saying that I caused it, but the, the report being released and the firestorm are caused among a few writers. Uh, that's when they did it. So of course what the statement said, okay. Uh, our, 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 our friends over in public affairs, Alyssa Farah. All right. Remember her name. Uh, the spokeswoman said, quote, about not releasing the numbers we will continue to do our best to balance transparency in this crisis with operational security 
Orwell, folks, Orwell, come to life, new speak, new speak. They're going to balance transparency with operational security. Uh, explain to me how they're going to show what transparency are we going to get? I mean, besides telling us the the level of sickness, right? The the level of sickness within the military. What 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 they're going to get? They're going to say uh, there are some people who have it. I mean, what what would transparency look like? Can't we admit? Just admit to us. Stop lying. Stop obfuscating. Tell us the truth. That transparency and your Pentagon definition, which is inherently flawed, your Pentagon definition of operational security and transparency are mutually exclusive. They are opposing concepts. They won't tell us that. Instead, they're going to lie. They're going to use newspeak. They're going to balance transparency. Give me a break. Instead of changing behavior, they're going to change the name. That's what they do. That's how they do, folks. That, that's what they do. They don't change behavior. They change what they report. And in case you think, in case folks think that, that this is a corona-specific problem rather than the system operating as designed as I propose, then I point you to the fact that two years ago, the Pentagon ordered its own in inspector general for Afghanistan to cease releasing the numbers of Afghan soldiers and police officers killed in the war with the Taliban. One could argue the single most instructive statistic in that war. Why? Because that statistic tells us whether the government that we have propped up can sustain itself and win. Because the whole, the, the whole mission or, the, or the, the whole concept, the whole strategy, I should say, is to hand over to the Afghans, right? And it's a question of how long that's going to take. We will only know if the Afghans can win or maintain the status quo even if they're not losing more soldiers than they can produce. It's a simple math problem. Now, what we knew is that for the two years previous to that change of policy, the Afghans were losing more than they could produce, significantly so. Instead of changing strategy, they classified the data, right? They classified defeat, folks, and they're doing it again. It's of a piece with the institution's design. That's my point. Sorry, I was stuck in my thought. Oh, no worries. I mean, sometimes I just, sometimes I just you know, I'm so eloquent that there's really nothing to say. Just a drop the mic moment. I get it, guys. So, um, let's move on to talking about, um, tracking down potential cases here, here in the States. Um, we haven't seen specifically, uh, you know, the, the tail there, the right now we don't have the telltale signs that the military or the Trump administration through the military wants to take over law enforcement and do those kind of things. There are activities that do, they don't border on you know, violating posi comitatus or anything like that, but they do certainly present questions. The uh, case in point I'm thinking of is what's going on with the governor of Rhode Island sending National Guard troops with their state patrol door to door to track down cases. Now, I understand that the, the, the tracking needs to get done, but as people are already pretty scared and lots of people are already who are unfamiliar, who are ignorant of anything about martial law or posi comitatus or 
a whole bunch of other stuff um, that they understandably have questions. And so my, my thought is pick a recommendation that doesn't scare the shit out of people like sending the National Guard door to door at this particular moment. Now, if that's the only solution they can think of, something has to be done for them to track down those cases. Um, but I think that they instead should do what they're doing in uh, Kaiserslautern, Kaiserslautern, Slautern, Germany, which is one of our army posts there, that they're calling people on the phone. They determine somebody they think has been exposed, they contact them, they inform them, they say go into quarantine, and then they ask them, who have you been exposed to? And I would imagine getting a phone call and helping somebody over the phone would be much, much easier than having people show up at my door, possibly with, with armed state patrol, to tell me that I need to do that. And of course, it also, uh, Kagan pointed this out earlier when we were talking about it, that it removes any chance for infection between those two groups. So if anybody is has, uh, has no symptoms but still has been exposed to the virus, they're not unnecessarily sharing it. Um, I have seen in a couple articles, and there's not much info on it, I wish I was in Rhode Island right now, uh, armed army MPs, I assume they're National Guard guys, but they were helping at a checkpoint on I-95 there. Um, see, that to me, much more to, I think, what to the average person would scream martial law of some kind. If you saw armed army MPs, you know, checking IDs or whatever they're doing. And I'm sure they're just doing exactly what they've been told. The state patrol's there. I, I doubt that they would, would make any poor choices, but it does raise the hair on people's necks. And so that the psychological use of these forces and how they're used needs to be seen, um, needs, to, needs to be more understood. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone whom you think might be affected by it. Maybe a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military can create for minorities and also inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a minute and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and other crap I can't think of right now. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Lorenz. Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, 
you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did an awesome job designing our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. You know, I'm sorry to cut you off. I mean, I just brief on this issue. I think transparency, real transparency, is 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 the best possible thing. I mean, how do you avoid conspiratorial thinking? Stop acting conspiratorial. I mean, yeah. um, even if I mean, I I don't actually yet believe that we're facing. You know some sort of you know truly orwellian um uh, totalitarian use of the military in opposition to post commentators i mean i'll upset some of my you know some some of my own followers by saying I'm, i don't think we're there yet i think we need to be cautious about throwing that label around but you know one of the ways you avoid the perception of that is you know take some of your advice henry and then tell us what you're doing ahead of time clarify it provide the caveats explain how serious you take the use of any military, even National Guard force uh, within the borders of the United States. You know, explain how serious you take that, uh, how cautious you are about it, precisely what they're going to be used for, the limits you're going to place, you know, and be cautious in in your actions. Uh, You know, one of the problems with these stories is that when, when people are blindsided by someone at their door in a uniform, it drives the social media frenzy of conspiracy theory. You know, like I don't believe in 9-11 truth. Like I, I don't, I don't think we put charges on our own building. I don't believe that, but I completely understand why there are so many 9-11 truthers because there has been a lack of transparency about so many aspects Right, the Saudi papers, for one example, so many aspects of, of the 9-11 attacks. And, and, and also, we acted so conspiratorially ever since 1979 in Afghanistan in terms of working with these people and then lying about it and working with the people who became Taliban and al-Qaeda. We, we created a, a, a situation where people are going to be conspiratorial, and I, I think we should apply that same logic to you know, using the military within our own borders. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to bring up the Defense Production Act. Um, I didn't know if we were to talk about that, but I feel like it's important. Um, so it basically, it, it came out in 1950, and it's the idea is that the government can force, quote unquote, companies to produce things that are needed, deemed necessary for, you know, national security or whatever. So, like. <laughs> This this is like really powerful for us to be using right now. We force our companies to be ventilators and be building masks and all the things we need that are critical of in the United States. And I, so far, the only thing that's happened is that uh, Trump ordered specifically GE and I think maybe one other company to build uh, like a couple thousand ventilators. So. Well, like, that's it. And just 
one or two companies, not every fucking company that can, which is honestly would be the best option. And I'm just, I don't know. I think that this is a good, it's a, it's a, it's a tool that could help us, you know, confront this better. And it's really frustrating to see how this administration is just doing everything in half measures. You know, we, we, you know, he had initially, he only had the, um, the lock, the like lockdown basically for 15 days, you know, and then he extended it till the end of the month. And then now he's extending it until May, you know, and it's like, if we just tried to think about this in the long term, like other countries are doing, where it would say six months of doing, you know, nothing, or six months of X, Y, Z, like we could really, we could have a real impact on this instead of doing all this stuff, say, okay, in two weeks, we'll see how it is, you know, we're just... It's an, it's annoying because it feels like we're always having to restart the process then if we're not coming up long-term plan. And if this is our new normal, like if having the virus be with us for a while is what's going to happen, then we need to adjust our fucking reality. <laughs> you know, we can't consider that we can't keep thinking that we're going to go back to business as usual when that's clearly not the case anymore. And we either need to adapt to it or we're going to suffer. And it, unfortunately, it looks like we're in the latter case because Trump, well, the, the administration and the federal government has left so much of the ability to react on the states. And then they're also having to compete for resources. It's like we're doing this in the worst fucking way possible. <laughs> and we're, you know, it might come down. I don't know. I don't want to be alarmist i i'm actually trying to feel optimistic about where we might go with this but you know if things get worse and things deteriorate then we're gonna see even more drastic actions taken and it's definitely not going to be to protect people i think part of the part of the piecemeal response has been that one trump doesn't have a the an attention span longer than a firefly so there's certainly that um, but that this response is a capitalist response. It is a response to, you know, the, what were the first four coronavirus relief bills that were entirely uh, helping out corporate uh, corporations versus helping ordinary people. That we don't, our country does not know of a situation where we don't take every asset we have, including human lives, and throwing them at the bottom line of Wall Street. And so, you know, everybody, you know, is like, okay, two more weeks and we'll be okay. And then two more weeks and we'll be okay. And those people are still thinking that way where the intellect and intellectuals in the room, you know, Dr. Fauci and the other people that are actually trying to encourage our government to act sensibly about this. They're just, they're either being ignored or they're listened to for two weeks and it's thrown in the garbage. And, you know, like the, the fact that, that any kind of a public health system to respond to this, that. America just doesn't have it. We don't have anything like that. We have little vestiges of it here and there, but it's 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 just not there. And that is entirely by design. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's the radical in me, but you know, again, you said you're you're hopeful, and I think there are reasons to to be because 
besides exposing the venality and the unpreparedness and the structural inherent weakness of our uh, hypercapitalist system, the, what this has also exposed is the extent to which we, the people, the working class, have enormous leverage, enormous leverage. Um, and it won't be our political leaders who are going to vote for these bills, anything put in front of them, 96 to nothing, regardless of what's in it, because they're going to feel political pressure to do so, because if they don't or if they hold it up, they'll be told that they're keeping the cheese in the trap, as Jimmy Dore called it, uh, the cheese in the trap, which is the $1,200 or the $2,400 checks. Like you're holding it up. The people need it now. The economy needs it now. True, true, true. But in the, in the you know, people will vote for things that end up being big corporate giveaways in the process. We did the same thing in 2008. We haven't learned the lesson because no one wants to learn that lesson. I mean, that's, that's, that's just the reality. But this, this leverage of ours is demonstrable. Um, I, there's been wildcat strikes across the country. Okay. That means unauthorized by the union, sudden strikes with no announcement or little announcement or little notice. I love wildcat strikes. They were very prominent in the 1930s and then again in the late 1940s, right after the Second World War. Power structures fear wildcat striking more than anything else, more than anything else. That's why the Taft-Hartley Act, which uh, took away powers that had been granted by FDR in 1935 in the Wagner Labor Act, they were reversed in Taft-Hartley by a uh, a newly elected conservative Congress. A lot of that was in response to the wildcat striking of the 30s and the 40s. They fear that. It, it, they'll tolerate unions if unions play the role of the obedient, the obedient dissident, right? The, the, the faux dissident, right? What they'll do is they'll co-opt the union leadership. So wildcat striking makes them fear. But I, I want to see a general strike for everything that's non-essential. I want to see a general strike because we have the leverage and this is possible now. And, and the strike should go like this. We will not work for you, Jeff Bezos. We will not work for you with your $100 billion any longer unless our representatives in Congress demand universal health care. Take it, not ask for it, right? Uh, and all of these other things that are in, for example, Bernie's platform. Bernie will not win in the system. He will not win in the system. We must fight outside the system. Nothing has ever been given. No civil, this is the myth. This is the myth of great white man history. This is the myth of white savior LBJ Kennedy history. Nothing has been given to an oppressed class of Americans in history. It has always been taken, always been taken. It has been forced upon our leaders who then acquiesce only under pressure, only out of necessity, and then take credit for it and then write the history books, right? And, and that, that's how it works. Uh, it's always been pressure from the bottom in the civil rights movement, in the, uh, in, in the, in the fight for feminism and, and the right to vote. When women picketed President Wilson, every day in front of the White House for years, even during World War I, being jailed under the pretense of, you know, that they were affecting the war effort or whatever. 
I mean, that, this is the time. This is the time. General strike, wildcat strikes that start uh, blending into one another, coordinating, coordinated wildcat. I know that some might say that those are also opposing con- uh, concepts, and, and, and they are in a sense, but uh, it becomes something bigger if you do begin to coordinate the wildcat strikes nationwide. I will forego my books from Amazon that I love dearly, that are like crack when I see them at my door. I will stop clicking. As of, to, as of today, as of a few days ago, I will stop clicking by now, you know, unless it's something like, you know, I don't know, toilet paper or something. You know what I mean? I, I'll forgo that in the name of support for the general strike or the Wildcat strikes. And, and Jimmy Dore just had on the leader from my city, from my borough of my city, Staten Island, Christian Smalls. Google him, please, guys. Google him, folks. Listeners, I mean. Um, Christian Smalls, Staten Island. 5,000 employees, the largest single employer on the borough of Staten Island has half a million people, uh, Amazon uh, facility that's the size of like 27 NFL fields. Um, look at why he striked. Look at why he held, it was really more of a rally than a strike, a protest rally. Look at why he did it. Look at the, the failures of cleanliness and qu- quarantine and, and, and all the things, the risk that these middle managing company men just like in the military, these company men put his workers under. And this supervisor uh, led, this, led this sort of strike against it and was fired within two hours. And, 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 and he, this is not a rich guy. Um, he was crying on Jimmy Dore. And it was, you could tell it was authentic. He does not know if he will be paying his rent. And for anybody who knows New York City, even the shittier borough of Staten Island, it's expensive as hell. And uh, he called a wildcat, and he was fired two hours later. And and this is the system operating as designed. I'm just going to keep emphasizing that. But I do think, Kagan, that you're right. There is there is reason for optimism, uh, but that reason is in the streets. It's not on Capitol Hill. Definitely. And I don't know. I I'm just I get really frustrated. Like my my wife's mom works at a Trader Joe's and. You know, they're trying to do social distancing. They're doing better than some of the other grocery stores. Uh, And I just, I don't know, like, I can't help think about the people that don't, like, that are fortunate, that are not fortunate enough to, like, have a house, you know, because I work with those people every day. So it's like, and it's unfortunate because there's a lot of homeless people that are, like, not taking any precaution and it's hard because they don't have like they don't have a lot of resources to do so. But we're and so we're seeing cities kind of scramble and try to find ways to fix um, to help. But like I, I don't know if you saw the thing in Vegas where they had taken the event center parking space and created like social distancing blocks for their cots, basically for them to sleep outside and. Meanwhile, there's 150,000 fucking hotel rooms that are empty, completely And it's it's just so frustrating that, like, we can't... Maybe, like, people can sort of put some pressure and try to get them to do something. But, like, you think the owners of those hotels are going to be like... I mean, we tried to do that here in my county where we we were going to any of the motels that have... Um, outdoor 
doors, right? So like they're, all their doors are outside. I mean, that's, that seems to be the more um, uh, cleanly option, I guess, right now. And so we went around to all of them to try and find, you know, who is going to allow us to, because we have these vouchers to put homeless people into motels. And only one or two of them accepted. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, you have no business right now. And you're still saying no? Like, what does it take for people to fucking care? Like, for people, especially right now, it's like you're hurting for money. So take the money that is being offered. Sure, there might be some liability on one end. But it's like, what do you care about? Do you fucking care about making money or protecting your business or whatever? I don't. I don't know. I don't get it. And it's, it's been really hard for us to try and get people to, you know, break outside of these boxes right now. I think it's like, if this drags on for another month, which it will, you know, we're really going to have to start to make some of these bigger changes. And we're going to hear the same stuff that we always hear of, Oh, we couldn't have, we couldn't have uh, perceived this. We couldn't have expected that this was going to happen. It's like, like we always knew this was gonna happen. We always knew there was gonna be another pandemic and it was gonna be bad. But people don't wanna to listen to that, especially when their bottom line is on the table. I mean, I like the idea of just taking the rooms. I'm not saying you should do this, but think about what you yeah, can do. I mean think think about what you can accomplish. I, I like I really like when stuff is out in the open. I mm. I prefer totalitarianism to be i prefer totalitarianism to like brave new world huxley stuff right so i prefer orwell to huxley i don't want either but i like it better when they expose themselves and i also like that when you expose the inhumanity of systems you have the potential at least it can be bloody but you can which is horrible but you can you can expose a system and and in the process you can challenge it and sometimes overturn it and so that's what getting the dogs sicked on those African-American teenagers in Birmingham accomplished, right? It forced, they went in the streets and refused to not sit at the counters and refused to follow the, the, the polite laws of segregation. And, and they knew, they knew, I mean, the documents are there. They were martyring themselves knowing that Bull Connor would fall for the bait, right? He was the police chief and a monster of Birmingham. They knew they chose Birmingham yeah. because there was a Trump type, an overt course type in charge of the police. And they knew Bull Connor couldn't resist sicking the dogs and the fire hoses on them. And it, and it forced every one of those cops to, to make the decision to actually sick the dogs in them. And so what I mean is, using the hotel example, if we start taking rooms, taking them, occupying them by force, mm -hmm. the police will be called. And then I love the idea of putting the cop, cops plural, in the position in front of the cameras of having to decide whether they forcibly remove people in the interests of private property over individual human well-being. Um, I do think that at least initially, the, they will do that. The power structures and their, you know, their, their water carriers like we used to be will do that. They will sick the dogs metaphorically or literally on those people but the great thing about it is that when you expose it and you publicize it, it eventually 
eventually one of the National Guard soldiers is going to let the hippie put the rose petal in their rifle Mm -hmm. and not use the bayonet. That always happens eventually, even in the most totalitarian societies. Eventually, a National Guardsman refuses to shoot. For all the Kent states where they do open fire, eventually the water carriers and the servants of empire they are still human beings and and one of them and then lots of them and then lots and lots of them are going to let the daffodil go into their the muzzle of their rifle and 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 that's when the system breaks down because bezos and mcconnell and you name them i mean they are few and we are many they are few and we are many and they can only operate if the people who make $60,000 maximum a year, right, wearing the, the, the jack thug boots, they only can do what they, they can only maintain power so long as we, uh, so long as the police and the soldier and you name it, for 50 grand a year, it, it allows himself forever. And I know why we do it. I mean, there are good reasons. I mean, it's you have to pay your rent. I'm not naive. But eventually, if you if we stop saying if we stop being officers, if we stop being soldiers, if we stop being police lieutenants and start being humans, that's the Bezoses of the world, all that virtual money that they have up in the cloud is not worth a goddamn dime. Just like you stop being an officer, you stop being a platoon leader the minute your soldiers refuse to go on patrol. <laughs> You're in charge of shit. We found that out in the late part of the Vietnam War when they started rolling hand grenades into tents. I don't condone that. And more often when they started saying, no, nope, nah, we're not going on this patrol. Not in 1971, not when the war is already over and we've already lost. What, is that, what does that gold bar mean? Once your soldiers do that, it means a buck ninety nine in the in the in the PX. That's what it means, and I'd argue it goes the same for the CEOs and the politicians. So, I was thinking we should move on to talking about a bit of the the fear and anxiety of the moment and how people can deal with it, how they can handle the stress that is is the the current the current state that we're living in right now, the current era. Um, the first thing I wanted to say was I wanted to share a neat, uh, a neat meme that my wife sent me the other day and it was, it's, um, called Schrodinger's virus. And I'm sure most, most of you are familiar with Schrodinger's cat, the physics experiment whereby that there's a cat in a shoebox, you, um, that they can both be dead and alive simultaneously because you don't know what's actually happening inside the box. So so the virus it says you know we all have now have schrodinger's virus because we cannot get tested we can't know whether we have the virus or not we have to act as if we have the virus so we don't spread it to others and we have to act as if we've never had the virus because if we didn't have it we're not immune therefore we both do and do not have the virus schrodinger's virus i share this because i think it's the best way to remind people, especially if you're at a point where you're concerned about whether or not you're you're potentially spreading the virus or not, that 
you have to look at it both ways. You know, you have to understand that if you have the virus, you don't want to give it to anybody else. But because testing is so poor, there's no way to accurately determine for people that don't have the virus, they don't have it at all. And so it's important to act too, if you've never had it, because if you don't, you have zero immunity. So I found that I thought that would be a, a, just a good, simple way for people to look through the lens of this situation and have an understanding as to why you're trying to deal with a situation with two potential outcomes, neither of which are fully understood or ones that you want. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great, it's a great way to look at it. Go ahead, Kagan. Oh, just, I mean, the, there's a lot of cities and communities that are coming up with these mutual aid networks, you know, where people are basically like a co-op, mm -hmm. you know, where people are coming together and pooling their resources to help the greater community at large. And like, fuck, like, that's what we want, right? Like, we want people to be coming together. And um, I mean, if people are struggling for supplies, you know, basic stuff, like try to find one in your area because uh, there's probably, you know, and it's hard right now when people are, you know, like for me anyways, like as a county employee, like I feel, I feel like I can't do a lot right now. You know, like I, there's only so much I can do and I feel bad about that. Like, especially for the people in my program, you know, the vets in my program that need help and, like there's not a lot that I can do other than, you know, try and get them groceries here and there. And it's, <laughs> it's like hard. It's, it, I, I, I think about them a lot because a lot of them are, you know, older and they're, we're chronically homeless. So they're dealing with a lot of compounding health issues. And I mean, I've already had like a couple of people in my program pass away, but like, I'm expecting that more of them are going to pass away because of this. Um, and that, that like, I mean, you guys know it never, it's never good when, when that happens and you don't really know how to deal with it. You always think about, could you do more or less? And I think a lot of us are going to have that experience like as a country. Um, and I, I hope that through this like shared, um, tragedy, you know, that we'll be able to come together more and like so those aid networks they're not just going to go away when this starts to recede you know that we we are going to have these changes even if they're small but like small but fundamental changes into how we interact with each other and how we uh just talk to each other like just the other day i was going to take my garbage out and like all my hands were full and this guy was getting his bike and he like was like, hey, let me get that for you, you know. And it's just like, like something little like that, that, uh, that was really nice. Like it was really profound. It was like there are people, like especially when we're all so isolated, there are people still wanting to make like small connections. And I, I think that those little things are really going to mean a lot to us as humans uh, going forward. Yeah, I mean, it sounds small, but I. I I mean, Bobby Kennedy called them the ripples of hope, you know, and I know how, I know how trite that all sounds, but I mean, it's, it's real. Folks are saying hello to each other. Folks are 
being decent on you know in small ways that I, I've been seeing every day and, and, and something strange has happened I'm happy these days I mean not 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 because I don't take what's happening seriously but I'm a can be a dark person and I, I've had some really just rough patches in my life where I was down on the human race and <laughs> it's come out in the pod a number of times and I do believe intellectually a lot of that stuff but I've been happy recently and and I think a big part of it besides having my kids around me is just sort of like seeing some of this goodness in the world and you know I've been using him a lot recently because I've always been obsessed with him and he just seems more appropriate than ever but you know Camus said in his book The Plague um, his very famous novel that he wrote you know in the I think late 1940s um, he said that it may sound I'm paraphrasing but he said it may it may sound ridiculous or it may sound like um, illogical but the only it goes to this point of what you're saying since you never know in an absurd world because he was the absurdist philosopher since you never know if you have if you're going to get the plague in his book or if you have corona today since you never know that and you can't control it and all that he says the only way to fight the plague is with decency and and i believe that the only way to fight corona is with decency because most of it we can't control but we can control whether we're decent to one another and what we're seeing from the power structures, military, corporate, political, is that they are not choosing decency. And they are not choosing decency the same way that the people on my block are. Because, not because of just power corrupting and absolute power corrupting. No, because systemically, these institutions are, are built, they're designed not to be decent to the common person even to their own employees or, or soldiers or, or sailors i mean but there is decency in the world people are fighting it with that kagan you're doing it in a real way well beyond what i am and probably what henry is um and and i think that that's important and i do think that camus rejoinder applies very well to that meme henry you know act like you've got it act like you haven't had it all that and then, okay, well, how do you respond? Well, you respond with the medical prudence of trying not to spread it, and you respond with the human prudence of being decent. And, and that's, that's the best thing that any of us can do. And if we model that behavior at the bottom, and we demand that behavior from the top, and we take that if necessary, you know, not through shooting cops in the street, but if we take that by moral and physical force of our bodies and nonviolent protests, then then, then something will come out of this, something positive. So I made a, made a quick little list here of just a couple ideas I had for things people can be doing right now, even at home, to both handle the situation, to help with your own mental health, but also to do something to, to change our outcome here. And one is, and I'm going to start this myself, um, is I'm going to start advocating for better government. In, in different ways that, that send more letters and emails, things that are non, non physically required to talk about, talk about the things that we're talking about today, but do it as much in our, you know, our online capacity, you know, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Um, I'm going to do my best to protect my loved ones, but also try to be there for people that are just nearby, like, your neighbor helping you with your garbage garbage cake and that's a really cool thing very simple human thing and it, it helps people so much um 
if you see troops, if you if you deal with any troops, if any troops come to your door, ask them questions, basic questions. Who are you? Where are you stationed? How's it going? They don't want to be there any more than you guys want them there if you happen to see them. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that something worse could, with our military couldn't happen down the line, but the vast majority of troops on the street, National Guard guys, are away from their families, and they're probably as afraid of, as you are, of, of contracting this, um, if not more so because of their uh, additional exposure. Um, I don't know that their presence will be entirely positive, but I think that we should give them, at this moment, a, a, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Um, but yeah, just, just be positive, keep your loved ones close, help somebody if you can, and ask those troops about what they're up to. I've been, um, <laughs> when I do have to go outside, I, I still, my, I'm really grateful that I still have, you know, my creative outlet of playing guitar. I still am taking lessons. So my, it's nice because that my teacher can still be open. So yeah. I've been <clears throat> giving him more money because I can, you know, I, my wife and I are both fortunate to be able to work remotely. So we're trying to like help out our friends and the community and like people that need it because we're fortunate enough to continue to have a paycheck. So when I go to my lesson, like I take lift there because I want to give somebody some money because I know that their, you know, drivers are like their ridership is way down. So it's like, Hey, like I have money, you know, I want to help the people that I can because I'm fortunate enough to be able to, but I, I don't know. It's like, I feel like, I feel like that's a sentiment that a lot of people have right now. And um, I, th I think that's going to continue as well. It's not just going to go away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those of us who, uh, yeah, are more fortunate, there are, there are small ways we can help each other. I would never tell people what to do with their checks. Um, we don't know when the next one is coming. Um, it is obviously, uh, related to income on some level, right? So it's already got some of that built into it. But, you know, I mean, you know, if you're in a, I know for me, I'm in a position where, you know, I, I don't, I do have a lot of bills and, and, and collect ex-wives and child support like baseball cards. But at the same time, I, you know, I know that a good chunk of that check I don't need and, um, and I'll find some outlet for it. And, that's just one tiny financial thing. But if you multiply it by a million folks, it's, you know, we need big distribution from the top redistribution, but if we're not getting it, there are little things that we can do and it matters. It matters because we don't know. We don't know. I mean, life is extraordinarily short and I hope that my last actions are reasonably in line with decency rather than, you know, selfishness. Uh, so while I am flawed and selfish and self-righteous like any other human, I, I really hope that I can model the right behavior uh, however long my life is, you know. And I think, you know, I'm young and healthy and it probably will be long, but there's always a bus with your name on it. And I think that, you know, theoretically, and, and I think we, you need to live to some extent in accordance with that. Um, there's one subject that we... Uh should go over real quick just before we we close up here for today and 
that is what is happening in um, hotspots around the globe um, as far as the weight of sanctions and the weight of destroyed infrastructure is making for, for places like Yemen that is already dealing with an outbreak of cholera, um, for places like Somalia, for Afghanistan, for Iraq. Um, keep these people in your thoughts. Keep them if you're in your prayers, if that's if 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 that's your thing, um, because what little we do have here in the states, they don't have over there. You know, we're choosing right now. Iran is just absolutely wrecked with coronavirus right now, and yet we're dialing up our sanctions instead of dialing down in a time when I think mercy and peace would be called for more than any other. And hats off to all the anti-war organizations, different ones that have come out saying that this is the time for a global ceasefire. This is a time to say we're going to stop, at least for now, and let people deal with the horror of the virus by itself. Because while it's certainly horrific in its own right, having to deal with living in a war zone, surviving with your children, having no food to eat, having whatever downfall that may have come from American activities there that they certainly need our, our thoughts and prayers if we can offer them. Yeah, I, I wrote extensively too much uh, in terms of word count for popular resistance. Um, I called the article Epidemic Exacerbation, and it's like a history of you know, the United States, uh, it's not alone, other countries have done it, but the United States profoundly um, affecting previous virus epidemics through its sanctions and through its bombing and blockades. And, um, you know, the, the, the empire is being tested. It's being given the empathy test uh, as we speak, and sanctions are the litmus test. And, and we've been found wanting as would be expected um but it doesn't have to be that way because again uh, we can collectively demand within this united states but also globally through solidarity like you said an immediate moratorium on sanctions and i think that in in addition to the basic decency of it which is the main reason to do it Something really interesting would come out of this, and it's a test that it's an experiment I'd like to see us try because we've never tried it before. Cease all sanctions and blockades against supposed enemy states, and watch how nothing changes. Watch how we're no less safe. Watch how there are no more terrorist attacks than before on American soil, because what that will do is it will ever it will forever deflate the myth that these were enemies in the first place, that these really were existential threats. When nothing comes, because we're always told we can't drop sanctions, we can't drop our military posture because that we, we can't take the risk. Well, let's take this profound pandemic and take the risk for reasons of decency, but then let's benefit from the strategic information we receive as output, which is that these, and it's conjecture, but I'm so sure I'm right. I mean, I'm always sure I'm right. I'm really sure I'm right that nothing will change, which will demonstrate once and for all what so many of us in the anti-war movement have been saying, that these threats have always been inflated or made up. And when nothing bad comes of it, maybe then we can rethink our entire posture 
towards these supposed enemies. And I think that that would be a really, really remarkable thing. Um, I don't have optimism, but I have hope. I'll say that. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not.